The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Eyes and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Julia Moody has a graduate diploma in voice studies from NIDA, a BA from Curtin University and is fully accredited as an associate teacher of the Fitzmaurice voice work. She did her actor training at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre in the UK and she's performed as an actor in theatre, film, TV and radio with companies across Australia. She works internationally running bespoke voice training sessions for professional speakers in all domains, the corporate arena, the professional media, education, theatre and film with politicians, legal professionals, medical professionals, sporting professionals and many others. Julia has lectured in voice at leading drama schools around the globe, including at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and the Victorian College of the Arts. Julia was also head of voice in the acting department of the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts at Edith Cowan University for 21 years. I was fortunate to benefit from her teachings whilst at WAPA. Julia is engaging, vital and a consummate practitioner of voice. Students have been most fortunate to benefit from her nurturing guidance. Another treat to catch up with her when I was recently visiting Perth. Here's my conversation with the wonderful Julia Moody. Say a a level, just a level. Okay, it looks looks like one of those soldiers outside the palace with the Busby on. (laughs) cute. Never heard a microphone described as that, but you're quite right. It does look like a yes. All the royal things have been on lately. Um, yeah, quite a historic time for the world. Mm. Uh, not particularly a monarchist, but you have to have admiration for an incredible career that yeah. that, that woman uh, extraordinary navigated. And some of the stories are uh, my favourite was that when that you know the crown and when she was coronet when she was crowned. It, the crown was incredibly heavy, and apparently she wore it all day one day just to get used to the weight of it. Right. And, and there was this Charles talking about memory when he was a little boy, seeing his mum there, and he was about five. He, I think he was, when, 
you know, just walking, sitting there, you know, at a dressing table wearing a crown and walking around the, the palace wearing the crown for lunch and everything just to get used to the weight of it. <laughs> well, that's something he'll have to get used to now, isn't it? Mm. Mm. I love the, um, the pageantry and the theatre yeah. of, of all of the, uh, the funeral. And... Yeah, yeah it was, and they all had new costumes. And, and well, could, it was yeah. a piece of theatre, wasn't it? It, it was a ter- incredible theatre, yeah, yeah. The royals all speak in a particular way. What, how, how do you define that, that accent? Oh, that well, it's, well, it's changed over time. There was a, a great thing I heard on the ABC... It's all these snippets of the Queen all through her life. And when she started off, she was so high and so sort of very, very nice and light. And, you know, and of course, over time, her voice changed. But she, she, she did lose that kind of awfully thing, the rather stiff thing that she used to have. And so she, she, she came, became more relaxed. And, and Charles, of course, he's, he's, he doesn't seem terribly eloquent, does he? No. No, but he's... Uh, he's, he's always uh, searching uh, for... Uh, yes, he's, 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 he's not very confident, is he? He's got that great tension around his larynx when he talks, and yes. Yeah, yes. And, of course, and, and Princess, Princess Anne's just got that whole sort of horsey thing going on and sort of really... That's sort of strange thing she does with her upper lip when she talks. And thankfully, we don't hear her very much, but... Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're an odd... They're an but their way of speaking, have, have they become attuned to each other and they're, that's just the pattern that the family fall, fall into? Or is it their education? Would, would it be all those things? Because that's all the, the, all the elements that feed into an accent or a dialect. But I think they've been quite conscious of, of moving with the times, you know, because, uh, well, William and Harry certainly are... A lot more relaxed in there. They don't speak the, the as formal an RP as as the, the rest of the family do. They're, they're a little bit looser, but they're still yes, very uh, very articulate and very uh, meticulous in their speech. Hmm. The voice can be used to to armor someone or to give them a sense of authority. And you know, yeah. hear stories of Margaret Thatcher who went into she had. Voice classes, didn't yeah. she? When she became prime minister, I think Nigel. Nigel Whiteout, yes. He worked with her. Once, she? Yeah. Well, I believe she was a northerner, and she had this kind of sound in her voice, and she wanted to get rid of that because she because there are always connotations in Britain of north and south. It's it's still quite strongly there even today, but and yes, yeah, so she she I can't I can't do Maggie Thatcher, but but she was but she had a very you know, she very very kind of. Um, very rounded tones, very conscious speaker when she spoke, very kind of finishing each word, but very almost as if she was expected people to be taking dictation as she spoke. You could always hear the commas and the full stops. <laughs> and it was as if every phrase was an arrow that was about to sort of oh, yes. be shot. Yes, yeah, yeah. You can't ever imagine her relaxing. I can't imagine her you know, watching the telly and having a laugh with her. <laughs> oh, couldn't she's gone now? Yeah. We all be, we all begin from the same starting point, don't we? Uh, the day we're born, we begin with a bunch of cries and screams. Oh, and well, actually, the first thing that happens when you're born is if the little tongue comes out. I always find that fascinating. That that that's it's that opening into the world, and out comes the tongue to feel the air, and yeah, then often the cry that follows. And mm. 
So then our voice is defined by environmental factors and... Yeah, well, uh, fetuses can hear in the womb. So the ear is also shaping the voice. I remember doing a show when I was at at, uh, Bristol Old Vic in the the holidays and when I was a student there, Michael Loney and I were very kindly given a, a, a job with the Bristol Old Vic company as understudies on the on the pantomime, which is Cinderella. And one of the women in the chorus was pregnant and sort of binding her stomach up to, her belly up to hide it. But every interval she used to sit there with a set of headphones on her baby playing it. Um, I think her husband was Welsh and she was playing Welsh, speaking Welsh words so that the, the fetus would get used to the, the sound of the Welsh as well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's, I mean, when we start to speak, we, we, sh- we shape the sounds that we hear around us and uh, gradually develop, well, the mother tongue, the, your, your base way of speaking. Because everybody on the planet has their own way of speaking. There are no two people who speak exactly the same. It's like a, a, a fingerprint or a thumb, you know, it, it, that every, even people in the same family speak differently. There's sometimes recognisable patterns, though, isn't oh, there? Oh, definitely. Yeah. There'll be patterns, yeah, there'll be cadence, there'll be, there'll be vocabulary, you know, um, and things like that, hesitation sounds that might be familial. But every single individual has their own way of speaking. It's called idiolect. Right. It's fascinating. Yeah. Which, and that's, that's how, like, in the time that, that I've been... Uh, we're working as an actor with different accents and dialects and then teaching it. The way the huge shift has been that you used to be taught everything from a base sound. So and that sound was usually received pronunciation, which is a British sound. It wasn't even from an Australian received pronunciation. It was from a British one. And then from that, so you had to sort of learn those sounds. And then from that, you shifted into whatever accent or dialect you wanted to move into. But what happens these days is, which is so much more sensible, is you work from the individual accent, the individual's idiolect. It's a bit of a tautology, individual idiolect. But anyway, the, the idiolect of the, of, the, of the actor or the person. And see what they have to do to shift their tongue, their breathing, their... their um, I, I, I call it the, the, um, the, the theatre of the mouth. So they've got to sort of shift what happens in their mouth. So if you think of, okay, if, if the mouth was a theatre, right? Yeah. What's the, what's the tongue? What part of the theatre? The stage. The tongue is the stage. Fabulous, yeah. Right. So the tongue is the stage. And then what's the, uh, the, what's the, what's the little uvula, the little hanging down thing? What might that be? Uh, the flies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's right. So you've got the fly tower up behind, the nasal, yeah. yeah. And of course you've got backstage. Right. Right. And the teeth... Seats. Uh, a, a reserve. <laughs> yeah, a reserve, absolutely. <laughs> and the lips, sort of, the, you know, the, the, the walls of the theatre. The, the proscenium. The, the proscenium. Yeah. And yeah, the proscenium is probably back where the uvula is. And then you've got the arch up above, which is the, well, we've got His Majesty's Theatre here in Perth, yeah. and that's the beautiful arch auditorium, you know, exquisite. So that's got like that. And I tend to teach these days a um, workout. If, 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 if the person who's um, who's working towards an accent or dialect, if if they can work out where they are, like a little tiny version of them, like wh- whereabouts in your mouth would you be on your stage? Like, would you be upstage? Would you be downstage? Centre? Would you be? Yeah. So 
American, for example, is, is right center stage, right under the the dome, the most you know yeah. generous acoustic in the whole mouth. So you get this big space, and to make that big space, you'd have big, go have a big theater. So your back teeth have your part, and there's all this space backstage as well. I mean, you use the whole thing. Yeah, yeah? Um, received pronunciation or British English standard Southern British is downstage center, right down. So you're right down with the audience <laughs> on the tip of the tongue there. Like Queenie. Like Queenie, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So whereabouts would Australian be, do you reckon? Oh, um... <laughs> For you? <laughs> Out in the seats. Where, where's yours? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's more forward, I think. Um, For you? That's where you feel yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See, so, so again... Downstage centre. For you, yeah. Mm. So everybody... This is where it gets interesting. So say, um, say if, I, if I were to go from my, my base accent from Hampshire, right? So Hampshire is right back. And so if I go from Hampshire to standard Southern British, then I'd have to move my little version of myself right forward to the tip of my tongue, whereas you know, my mother, mother dialect would be is right at the back. Yeah, so right far up, up stage. Did you get it? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I'm just reflecting on my life, and um, I started life with a, a particular accent. I grew up in regional Victoria. Oh, right. I would drop my G's, and I yeah. have a very lazy way of speaking, I think, and, and through my uh, nasal passage as well. But it wasn't until drama school, I think, where you know you, you learn how to breathe and project and find resonance and, and vocabulary and language, yeah. and, and so you reshape your voice. Yes, you, you can reshape it. But that doesn't mean to say that there's anything wrong or, or, or actually lazy about the way you spoke. It's just that's, that was how you, you spoke. As, as long as you, people could understand you, that yeah. that's fine. Yeah. So that's sort of huge shift these days that you don't try... I mean, I can remember, I mean, I went to drama school at Bristol Old Vic in the early 80s. And we used to stand in a circle and we used to actually have to really perfect our, our, our RP. It was really crucial. It still is useful. I mean, Royal Shakespeare Company still will use that sound often, you know. But uh, I remember my, my, my teacher there, Francis, who used to go nuts because I could never get things like um, tune, tune, the ear, tune, it's called the liquid U, tune, and yeah, Tuesday. Because I would, I would want to go Tuesday. Tuesday, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even uh, Victorians have a different um, sounding accent to New South Welshmen or South Australians. Yeah. I, I will say Melbourne yeah. with that flat, yeah. uh, with the E being a flat A, Melbourne. Yeah, yeah Melbourne. Whereas yeah. people in Sydney will correct me, it's Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. And you, you've really got to concentrate to hear the difference. Yes, yes. It's, it's subtle, but it's, it's certainly there. A lot of it's to do with pace too, like and, and that and that the tune, like like the whole Sydney, you know, Sydney drawl, you know, like I always think of Jeannie Little as being a real extremity of it, you know, like, oh da, like oh yeah, you know, that kind of feel. They're stretching the bounds. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Jeannie. Yeah. Julia, why does the voice deepen as we get older? Well, okay. We're both a little older now than when we first met. Because our voices are much deeper. Yes, they are. And we have um, 
grown, shall we say, you know? Our body shapes are different, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So your, your acoustic environment is going to gradually shift, yes? And, and change. Even though, of course, you've got your skull, that's well, not going to change. But all of the, the um, membrane, all of the, the musculature, all of it, it's, it's all going to gradually shift and wear change. And wear and tear. Yeah. Absolutely. But however, there are so many um, people you hear speaking who are, who are actors in their sort of 80s and 90s who still have absolutely beautiful, crisp voices. I, mean, I was talking to Jill Perriman the other day. She's, she's not that... I think she's in her 80s now. But she, well, she's early 90s. Is she? Yeah, yeah. Goodness. But she sounds, to my ear, exactly as she did when, she was, when I first met her, when she would have been in her 60s. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's that sort of... That life force and that energy, but um, yeah, there's, but things do subtly shift, and also I, I suppose our, our hearing changes too, and our sense of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, as, as a, um, a voice specialist, a voice teacher, a voice coach, you need to have a, a, an appreciation of anatomy. Do, yes. you, do you study anatomy in your your voice? Yes, studies? I did. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I did my voice training at NIDA. Um, yeah. Yes, you do. Um, the, and the fascinating thing is that um, this wonderful association called the Australian Voice Association that has members right across the spectrum of, of the voice world, so from otolaryngologists to speech therapists and speech pathologists and voice teachers, all, all of us are in there. And periodically we have these conferences and you go along and there's ex- wonderful discoveries that continue to be made about the, the anatomy and physiology of the voice and now of course we've got extraordinary little tiny weeny cameras that can go in and confirm all of these these things that that we, we sense and know but then you can actually look at the workings of the voice it's magnificent yeah because I think it's something called Garcia oh, I can't remember it ah fails me but in the um, late 18th century I think he, he had a he got a, a, a dental, dental tool and he just got somebody to go, ah, and put it down and, and actually saw the vocal folds opening and closing and sort of went, ah, you know, so, so it's, it's um, fairly recently, if you think about it, the last 200 years or so. And the, 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 the whole science and, and technology of, of understanding and the voice and what's going on has, has been expanded. And... I mean, voice teachers always say, oh, well, science eventually catches up with us, you know, with what we, we actors have known all through the centuries. Yeah. They gradually prove it. <laughs> Working with actors across um, many years, I think you were at WAPA for 21 years. Yeah. 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 I'm still there, actually, casually, but yeah, as full time. Yeah. But, but also at various um, actor training schools around the country and yeah. internationally. Yeah, I worked at RADA for three years. Wow. And you were at, were you at RADA? No. No. I went to Bristol. Right. But no, when, when I finished, I, t- I took a gap year from, from WAPA because it's, uh, uh, it's a very full-on job and a wonderful job. But when you work in a department at... Uh, it's I not just nine to five. No, no. It's not. And back at... When I was there too, there were—I mean, every four or five, no, every six weeks, there'd be a new production for the acting students and music theatre, and we were always involved with both of them. 
so you'd always have you know nine till eleven nine a.m. to eleven p.m. days where you'd be teaching all day or, or working with the cast all day and then working at night in the rehearsals watching the shows having to see everything twice so yeah it was a long hours anyway I decided to take a gap year and when I in the gap year I went over to to uh, England and to visit relatives and so forth and a couple of years before that Lusita Faraday who's now teaching at Whopper um, she was a graduate from RADA and she'd a couple of years before got this wonderful wonderful genius teacher called Joe Windley who's from who's was then the lead voice teacher at RADA and he came over to Whopper and he did my job for me for two weeks while I went over to New Zealand so I'd sort of only met him when at the end when when I came back and he left anyway I went to visit him at RADA and he asked me to come in and um, teach the first years for a morning so I had three groups of the RADA first year students and he Joe and a colleague of his came in and, and watched the sessions I did some Fitz, Fitzmaurice voice work with them which is Tremor. Tremor, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you remember. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll elaborate on yeah, this. Yeah, sure. yeah, sure. But um, anyway, uh, and they watched, because they were, we were talking before about writing assessments, you know, they had to, all assessments to write for the students, so they, it was great for them to, to watch somebody else with their students to observe. Anyway, I didn't realise I was kind of auditioning for a job that I had no idea, because the next day I went out for dinner with the, the two of them and, and Joe said, have you got a British passport? And I said, well, actually, I have. He said, oh, because we need... Because Emma, that was the other teacher, is going to work at the Royal Shakespeare Company for a, a season and we need someone to cover for her. So uh, I worked at RADA for that term. That's in 2017. Came back to Australia, then went back and, and did it at RADA. Um, and then the next year, in about June, July, he contacted me again and said, look, we need somebody full-time. Can you, can you come back? So I did another, the end of that year, I did a term, and then I did the, ne the next year as well. Yeah. Did you see much difference between um, uh, the acting students in the UK and Australia in their first year and what they actually knew about the voice? What they knew about the voice, that's interesting. Well, I assume that, 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 that all of these students would arrive with very little knowledge whatsoever. Yeah. More than they used to. Right. I mean, it used to be, I remember, particularly in music theatre. Yes, well, uh, there, there would be the awareness of uh, the singing voice. Yeah, but they would have no idea about spoken voice. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, way, way back when I first started at, at WAPA um, or at VCA, that sometimes, they, you know, there's people who were singers would say, well, why do I have to do a, a spoken voice class? They didn't, didn't sort of make that leap. But uh, most of the people I was, had to do with at first at, at RADA were the master's students. The, it's called the MA Lab. And they've got different courses for different levels, uh, um, different BA courses there. But on the whole, I think they came in, the, the first years there were just as, um, certainly just as capable and had the sort of... A, a very most of them had a very loose idea of what a voice class was. Some of them had done one or two classes. That's it. But not very much physical awareness or linking of, of the voice to movement and, and acting, because really, I mean, one of the big 
it's not the secret, but a voice class is really an acting class. Yeah. As an acting Connecting class, as a movement text, class, yeah. and you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's all interrelated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so do tell us about the Fitzmorris technique. Ah, oh, Fitzmorris voice work, right? Well, it's it's um, one of the one of the fundamental areas you're working with with when you want to to take that step into making any text that you're speaking yours so that you're having the thoughts the sequential thoughts and the aims and the desires of the person you're playing so you really have to be able to to understand the text at a very deep level yeah and that's what we do as actors we take the step into somebody else's thinking and speaking. If you have strong habits in your own speech, or if you have strong habits in your own breath, to go even more fundamentally, and the, the rhythm of your breath affects, of course, the way that you speak. So if you have a, a sort of very strong patterns within you, sometimes it's, it's quite difficult to make that leap into somebody else's breath rhythms and hence speech. I say that as a premise because that's, for me, that's that's the thing that I really adore about the Fitzmaurice voice work, um, is that it helps you take that at a very synaptic level, that leap into jumping over habits that you have in your breath and in your, your patterns, so you can actually allow yourself a responsive and impulsive breath that can and of course breath and thought are one and the same thing so you can then leap into a text in a, in a more open way and actually practically what happens in a, in a Fitzmaurice voice work session is that you induce very simply using your arms or legs in, in a slightly very gently stressed position if you like they're called dynamic efforts. You use your arms or legs in order to stimulate a tremor or a shudder or a shake in your body so that you're, you actually allow your breath, your, all of your respiratory system to, and in fact your whole nervous system, to, to be stimulated and charged up in such a way that you... you you're very alive to, to the new thought and the new breath. And so you have, you have a, 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 it's a very quick and, and it's kind of sumptuous way of becoming very present in your work. I don't know if that is, it's very hard no, to good. explain with words. It's, yeah, it's yeah, easy yeah, to yeah. show and do. That's right, yes, <laughs> on, on the floor, on the floor. Yeah. Hmm. But two stages, that, that destructuring, isn't there, hmm, of, right. of recognising yeah. uh, what habits you might have and um, yeah. opening them up, and then restructuring, restructuring yeah. building the new skills. Because hmm. yeah. a lot of the Fitzmaurice voice work is kind of straight, if you like, voice work. It's, it's that you would find in Cicely Berry's work or Kristen Linklater, or, as in it's... it's You're aiming to get your breath behind the word, and there's work, there's articulation work in Fitzmaurice voice work too, which is very similar to to all the other um, 
great masters. Um, and the restructuring is, is actually gathering that chaotic breath and actually using it in a focused way to take it onto text. So you're, so you're actually opening up your potential. Because we have, we, we, we tend to stick with a, a, a pitch range that we're feeling fairly comfortable with. Yeah, and we, yeah. we tend to stick with rhythms that we get comfortable with. And, and, you know, it's wonderful to be able to shake those up and to change them. And particularly if you have a hold in your body that you're not aware of. Yeah. And, it, I mean, simplistically, it might be a jaw or, or um, a hold in your ribs or something that you're not aware of. And so to actually open up, it's, it's, it's brilliant when you see people sort of realise that they can release something they've been holding on to for a long time, not even not un unconsciously holding on to. And then they suddenly, whoa, this sound comes out, all these uh, uh, vocal abilities that they didn't know they had. I'm always fascinated that um, a lot of these methods for actors have been born out of uh, a practitioner who has investigated... Um, methods of healing um, and Catherine Fitzmaurice was certainly interested in, in yoga and, and Reiki and um, in, in developing that vocal technique. In a similar way I'm reminded of Joseph Pilates who again started the Pilates method as a, a form of, 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 of healing. Yeah and Feldenkrais yeah. and Alexander that technique, technique yeah. yeah yes yes yeah, that's right they had, they had something that they wanted to explore for themselves and, and challenge in themselves and yeah yes absolutely yeah yeah. Do you recall the first word you spoke? Me? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, do you? Um, I think it was truck, my mother has told me. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> yeah. But it's a, I, I just find it interesting, you know, what other word, first words that a, that a child forms in their mouth? Mm. Um, obviously stimulated by visuals or, you know, the fact that, I mean, truck, I have to, you know, control your tongue to create that. Truck, absolutely, and then the the hard yeah. must have been very precious to you. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they said they said that babies say da before they say ma, da da before mama because and all these fathers think oh let me read those. It's just because it's the sucking action of the tongue against the palate. Yeah. yeah. That they have they've had to feed to nurse, <laughs> so that the tip of the tongue is a, is a little bit more um, it, it initiated the initiates the sound and the action. Yeah, da 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 yeah. da da. Did you grow up in Perth? No, I grew up in England. Right. Mm, and when did, you, when did you come to Australia? 71. Right. Yeah. As a girl. As a girl. The family had migrated to... Yeah, we yeah. were 10 pound poms when in fact I think I came for free because I was under, under 16. And um, I went to Perth Modern School um, for... Uh, the, the final two years of my schooling, which was lovely, which was great. Had a lot of wonderful. Do you know Peter Taplin? No, no. no. I thought you might know him through. No. Yeah, so, so is that where you're discovering the arts and, and performing? Yes, yeah. yeah well, actually, entirely. I mean, the reason I'm an actor probably is because when I started at the school, I, nobody really wanted to know me because I went in there as a music student and all the music students started in first year and it's very unusual to some somebody to start there in fourth year, which I did. Um, so the musers didn't really want to know me, and you know, cruel kids can be unwittingly, but whatever. And the rest of the school who weren't musos didn't want to know me because I was a muso. And if there was anybody 
was left out of that lot, they didn't want to know me because I was a pom. So it was like this, oh. I was quite lonely. Except this one girl kindly took me along to the auditions for the school play, which was Pygmalion, the Pygmalion thing. And I got cast as Eliza because I had the freshest English accent, yeah. yeah. And suddenly my life changed. Suddenly I was a prefect and had boys fighting over me to take me to the school ball. And oh, it was marvellous. So, uh, <laughs> but also a, a role that required you to occupy two voice yes worlds. And what is really, really extraordinary? You have these things happen in life. So Eliza, my first sort of major role. The next role that was my really was a real turning point role for me was Educani Rita, and exactly the same story. Yes, yes, yes it's yeah. the Pygmalion story. Yeah. Pygmalion yeah. story. Yeah. Mm, extraordinary. Um, we find that coming up a lot as um, a trope in, in many stories, don't we? Pygmalion mm. story, that, that, mm, that, that mm. creation of, of, of and a, then again, a new person. And when I was recently working on a production of, of um, My Fair Lady here in Perth, it suddenly hit me that, of course, it's all about learning to speak and somebody training somebody to speak, and here I am, a voice teacher. I hadn't until that moment, till last year, suddenly went, oh, my God. <laughs> A E yeah, I, I know, O U. I know. Extraordinary, isn't it? By George Scottish. Yeah. Yes. Bizarre. Life is weird. Life is very strange. Uh, life imitates art. And it does. Life's Vicky Verky. Mm. So, um, you were bitten by the acting bug then, I guess, and and that was the only career aspiration that you had. Uh yeah. Well, I because I, I went to uni and well, I was first be training as a teacher but I was really bad at that because there used to be this thing where you, you well you've obviously got better I've got better yeah, yeah. I know I, I, <laughs> well I, I ended up a voice teacher because um, oh, sorry, I skipped ahead now but I, I ended up as a voice teacher because I was I was in my 30s and we're talking about the, the 80s now and the roles that were around for women were terrible then I mean very rarely did casting a role as a professional because like as again as I say life imitates art and yeah. it wasn't happening so and I and I was, I was sort of getting frustrated because I was, I was getting quite a lot of work I was, I was living, working in Sydney I was you know getting bits and pieces here and there but the the, the, the great shows that I always wanted to do like Hector Garble and things like that they, they just weren't being done you know, there were lots of. I did quite a few tours. They were they were fun, but there were no. I know the, the the roles weren't particularly meaty as, as as I felt. So I decided to start looking around for something else I could do. And frankly, it took about two or three years, and and I'm still working as an actor, and I, I even went over to live in London for eighteen months to to try and get away from being an actor so what else can I do as I was doing a lot of writing then and stuff but then I was off to roll back in Sydney so I came straight back and did it like okay because it's it's, I I love it love performing but it was just just, I just felt I was wasting I was just being very self-indulgent because I didn't have a family I didn't have children I was just being very selfish I didn't feel I was actually giving as much back to society as I, I felt responsible for. Anyway, uh, I came back to Perth to do some other shows. I was doing a show with Deck Chair, doing the removalists with, at Deck Chair. 
which is a great play. That was a wonderful role. And within 20, a 24-hour period, three different people, who none of whom knew each other, asked me to teach them voice. One was for some students, one was for an actor, another one was for a, a theatre company. And it was bizarre. It was just like the big finger went... And I started doing it, and I really enjoyed it. And then I discovered there was a voice teaching or teacher training course at, at NIDA. So I applied for that and got into that and went and did that. And, uh, you know, and I find teaching voice to be wonderful because you get to work with fabulous text. You get to work with all sorts of people, including wonderful actors. You get to uh, travel around a lot. You, you get to live in or deal with all sorts of different issues that people have with their voice. You know, like I've just been recently been working with a, um, a, a legal person, um, very high up on the, on the, on the scale, and um, been working with them on their breath. You know, how do you sit there, this person, in a judge in the Supreme Court? How do how do you how do you do it? You know, how do you sit there for four hours, and um, uh, and stay present, really? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. That that um, voice course at NIDA is probably one of the first formal uh, courses in Australia. Yes, yeah, it was. Yeah, very much so. What's the history of teaching voice in Australia? I mean, we're aware of. Um, you know, the King's Speech and um, the gentleman from Perth, Lionel... Uh, um, uh, I've forgotten his surname, but, so but you know what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, I do know what you're talking yeah, about, yeah. yes. Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. I suppose it was, it was experienced actors who yeah, yeah. then taught other people or students to... to uh, that's right, because there was Betty Williams and Bill Pepper were the teachers at... But Betty had come from the UK, Kirk. hadn't she? She had come from the UK, yes. Yeah. Yes. No, I don't think any of them did training here. They all had to go overseas to do their training. I think Bill worked, certainly did a lot of training with Cicely Berry and um, possibly Linklater as well. I know he did, went to, and it was always in, encouraging people to do courses. And Isabel Kirk, of course, trained with Kristen Linklater. Mm. So. And I think all of them were actors. I think Bill was an actor when he first started off too. And so of course, as all those other acting schools popped up, VCA, WAPA. Yes, uh, that yes. Recognition that that's an essential part of the course, of the mm -hmm. training. Yes, yes, that's right. Because they, they, they say that's, that really voice teaching as we know it these days, as, a, as in, other than elocution, came after the First World War when a lot of people, a lot of men particularly, were suffered the awful trauma of being gassed and also the trauma of being in the war and a lot of them affected their voices and they had to be had to do voice classes when they came back to be able to speak hmm. so it wasn't just the actual how they spoke it's actually literally be able to produce the sound yeah. and 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 get past the sort of terrible strain that they were in so that's when speech pathology too and became uh, more of a science but but I mean goodness I mean Aristotle and uh, w was writing about voice and about speech and Socrates and 
Sophocles, or the, and, you know, they're all aware and that there are Roman treatises on how to use the voice and, and what to not eat before a performance and all, all those sort of things. It's, you know, I think actors have always passed it because actor training was always used to be a sort of, an, you, you learnt on the job, you know, you're in a, an, an acting ASM, they used to call us, you know, you, you, you'd work as a backstage. Like one of my first gigs was um, on uh, um, Long Day's Journey Into Night, and I was um, doing props, and, and I had to play the piano backstage for Maggie Ankitel, the scene, which is... Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, so you were... Did, and I played the maid, so I went on and took the tea in, but... Yeah, so, so you actually learnt on the job, and you learnt in rep, repertory theatre and all those things. But actors... And, I mean, some of the things that they used to be around were have been disproved, like having a glass of port before a show, for example. For a warm-up. <laughs> <For a warm-up. laughs> it's, it's a lot of the theatres in the West End have got pubs right next door to them. It's, a gargle before I go A gargle, that's right. Yes, yes. Um, why do you think a lot of Australian actors, and many of them your ex-students, have achieved such great success in the American market? Uh, you know, I become enamoured with a particular TV show and then I investigate an actor and realise they're Australian. Yeah. You would yeah. never know because their accents are so... So good. So good. Well, I guess it's because we grew up, I mean, grew up with Sesame Street and grew up with American sounds. and I mean, kid, kids would come to audition at Whopper and you'd say to them, why are you using an American accent? And they'd say, I, I didn't realise I was. You know, it's right. so... Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, Australian actors, or not so much now... But certainly, it was always important that you'd be able to shift. If you wanted to work internationally, you had to be able to to take on, you know, the British or the American accent wherever it was you were working. Whereas uh, America's, of course, America's their ear isn't as attuned to the world's accents as ours are. Yeah. They haven't. They're not inundated with Australian television, or yeah. and still often an Australian will meet it. An American, they'll say, "Oh, which part of London are you from?" You know, they just can't hear the Australian accent. Um, I, I reflect on my time at Whopper, and I think I spent um, a lot of hours running to the toilet <laughs> because there was this belief that the voice had to stay hydrated, and everyone walked around with a two-liter bottle <laughs> yeah. of water, yeah. constantly sipping. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I imagine you can overhydrate the voice. You can. Um... <laughs> oh. Well, yes, you probably can, but, you, but you, it is still important. But yeah, yeah. that was extreme. I it think, was uh, that, extreme. that belief that we seem to, to all have. Yeah. Um, so obviously, hydrating is good for good for the voice. What's bad for the voice? What should we avoid? What's bad for the voice? Um, excessive screaming, like if you go out to a club or something. I mean, they say that most actors and singers actually hurt their voices in the party after the show more than on the stage in their performance. But. Um, it, Avoid yes, avoid situations where you have to really, really yell and scream, particularly places where there it's a dry atmosphere, you know, like in a club or something. And it's one of the tricky things for a lot of young actors is they've got a, a job in a restaurant or something oh, in yeah. the night, and they, you know, they they're trashing their voices because they're having to yell over all the sound wherever they're working. Um, being physically stressed is a, a not a good thing to help with your voice if you stressed in what they call the Bermuda Triangle of the voice, that from the tip of your nose, the shoulders, shoulders, shoulders yeah. tips, that any stress in that area around is going to affect your voice. Um, 
stay away from eating lots of chili and, and dairy food immediately before a performance because that'll make you really mucousy and um, avoid any excessively hot or really really cold substances or drinks just before you're going to be performing because again it's it's just a temperature thing you know you, you you're changing the temperature inside there's with those very delicate vocal folds that that aren't that far away from your mouth really if you think about it Mm. Um, nodules is something which pops up I suppose more so for singers mm. do, do actors tend to get nodules? Uh, yes they can get nodules anybody can get nodules sadly um, there's all sorts and, and again this is where the science is so amazing what they can do these days because they can the actual operating on nodules doesn't happen quite as co commonly now as it would have say 30 years ago or even 20 years ago these days they do a lot more therapy and and they'll do as much as they can to avoid operating but if they do operate they get they do so ex the, the instrumentation is exquisite these days because they need to take a camera down and look and yeah and I, I'm not up to date at the moment on on the latest things for rehabilitation but uh, um, again I'm going to blame COVID because I haven't been able to get to any of the conferences but um, they it's really worth going to uh, uh, an ENT or an otolaryngologist who specialises in voice. And they are ex they're extraordinary in their knowledge. They're wonderful. And they will then refer you to a speech pathologist who will, who will then give you sort of practice. Because it's, it's not just about performance. It's about the practice that you do you know, in your everyday life, not just in performance that actually supports your performance is the practice and also the preparation how you prepare for your performance so there's three things that I've stolen this again from Aristotle here's this um, triangle of rhetoric and you probably know of it logos ethos and pathos yeah, yeah, yeah. those three elements have to be conjoined to make a fine performance yeah. well I, I like to think of performance Preparation and practice being the three points of the, of the uh, a triangle for effective speech, if you like, because if you're just thinking about your performance the whole time, you're not ever sort of you're not ever um, going to you, you possibly will, will stay in the same sort of performance style all the time. You won't develop as much as you could do potentially with having more practice on some area that you want to develop your range your the rhythm your articulation your um, vocabulary your ability to pronounce uh, foreign names on site which is something a lot of broadcasters have to do those sort of things and then there's also there's the um, preparation like what do you do beforehand do you do some alignment work before you go out so you actually are confident that you've got the the most efficient functioning and the, and the best uh, potential physical potential you can give yourself in the performance, yeah. so that you you enjoy it and so that I'm quite big on enjoyment, <laughs> and so that uh, that you could be a, a clear and open conduit for the the text and the characters for the audience because it's all about the audience. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned broadcasters there. Yeah. I know that you've also worked with SBS. Yeah. With yeah. their broadcasters. Yeah, yeah. 
what did that entail? You mean you you talked about then um, uh, pronouncing words sight unseen as yeah. they, they come across. Well, um, I loved working there, and I'm going to be working there again soon. But um, because I mean, I don't speak the sixty-eight different languages that SBS broadcasts. I only speak English and a smattering of French. But it's possible to listen to somebody speaking in Urdu or whatever. That's a beautiful language. A language you don't know and you can still tell if they're boring <laughs> you can still tell if their breath is high you can still tell if they have some sort of speech issue going on you can still tell if they're not changing rhythm and energy between stories you can still tell if they're not bringing out their nouns or if they're not shaping the thought you can still tell if they're not thinking about what they're saying no matter what the language yeah. and I love that because it becomes because they know I can't speak their language. They know I'm not criticizing them as a journalist. Yep. But only in the in the performance for, to their audience, mm. and and also you, if there's a lot of physical stuff you can do. You know, you can say, oh, you know, you're you're awfully tight around your um, shoulders, or or your trapezius. You 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 know, you you're, you're not allowing your breath down. You're you're, you're you're not using the middle of your tongue as well as the tip, or whatever. So you can actually work what they're doing physiologically too, and and give them exercises or or ways of thinking about what they're doing. Um, yeah. You talk about you uh, working with a variety of texts. Are there any playwrights who can teach us about the voice? I mean, I'm thinking of Shakespeare. Oh yeah, Shakespeare, well. absolutely. In in that that requires a particular breadth and command yeah. of the language yeah oh well anybody's a fabulous writer I mean Kate Tempest wow she's an amazing writer do you know her work no, no. Mm, a British poet contemporary poet and, and she's a playwright and a novelist too she's amazing the way she uses language Tom Stoppard um, and I just yeah um, oh Angels in America Tony Kushner. Tony Kushner. Oh, love, wonderful writer. You know, fabulous writers. And I had to, um, looking at Joanna Murray Smith uh, script the other day. Um, uh, and Female of the Species. Female of the Species. Yeah. Yes. Extraordinary. Wonderful. Yeah, the opening monologue of, oh. of uh, Margot is hysterical. Yes, yeah, so funny. Yeah, she's on the so, phone. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Clever, clever, clever. Yes. So, do you know, and and it could be all sorts of things that that um, the writers. The Bleeding Tree. I, I was lucky enough to do the voice work on The Bleeding Tree by Angus Cherini. Uh, I've got the surname's not right. Um, um, it, I think he's he either lived in Melbourne for a while or is or is Mel Sydney Sydney based. I think fantastic writing. Do you know that play? No, no, oh, no, no, no it's no. wonderful. Yeah. The play opens. It's a mother and two daughters. Her two daughters. They've just killed Dad. Oh, dear. I know. What a premise. Wow. Yeah. It, it's it, it, wonderful writing. And apparently when he wrote it, he wrote the whole thing without designating characters. So the actors could work out who was going to say what. When we, the version we did, he'd actually chosen, designated, because we didn't have a very long rehearsal period. But oh, it was wonderful. Really wonderful. Mm. We should, it's not only actors and singers who should care about their voice, it's, it's all of us, isn't it? Oh, yeah. 
Yes. Is there anything that, that we should be, the listener perhaps, that we should do every day to care for our voice? Sing, the, sing in the shower. Yeah, where I suppose you've got the, the steam and the... Uh... The steam, you've got a bit of range happening. My father sings in the shower every morning, he's 91. And he, he just said, how do you know what to sing? He said, oh, I just start making sound and it ends up singing. But it's it's not only makes you feel good and of course you're in the bathroom... Um, so you got steam, you sound good, you haven't got clothes on, usually you're on your own, so you could you know, you can be comfortable. But it actually stimulates the vagus nerve, which is the um, I think it's the X ten, it's the only cranial nerve that comes out of the body and it comes down and it's one of its um, points of, of contact is the round of the soft palate sphincter, soft palate and tongue sphincter. So when you're singing or speaking or Mm, even humming up and down through your range or doing a through your range, a lip flutter you're stimulating your, your the vagus nerve which then travels down and winds around all around the esophagus right around, and through the, the bronchial through the, through the respiratory system right down into the gut and feeds into the gut and it actually stimulates serotonin and dopamine development in the gut in the enteric brain so, and apparently it, you produce more serotonin and dopamine in your enteric brain, in your gut brain, than you do the one in the one in your head. Oh. So you're making yourself feel good, you're actually are feeling good, you're um, waking up your voice, and uh, entertaining people around you, you know what I mean? Who can ask for anything more? Absolutely. Julia Moody, thank you for a, quite a, a fascinating conversation. Uh, into the voice. I feel like I've been back in class again. <laughs> but as always, it's been been heaps of fun. Um, and I know the listener has uh, got a lot out of uh, this uh, conversation as well. So nice. thank you. It's lovely to see you again. Oh, thank you. Thank you. There's much to ponder from this episode. The voice is a vital tool of communication, not only for the actor, but for all of us. Hopefully you've garnered some essential knowledge and consider more closely your maintenance of this important instrument. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Stages.